I've been looking forward to having a podcast with Graham Hancock for over a decade now since I first became familiar with his work. And this podcast did not disappoint. We talked about everything I wanted to talk to Graham about, including some of the information that I received from Matthias Stefano, which posits the actual mechanism behind some of these magnificent megaliths that he's been researching as an investigative journalist. So we go through that whole story and really share and converse with what I've received from Matthias and what he's discovered from being on the ground and all the research that he's put into it for his, really his life's work in a big way, in addition to the great fiction works that we also discuss, and also the surprising blowback that he's received from mainstream culture, which is both surprising and not surprising given the current zeitgeist. We also talk about psychedelics and posit the potential reality of darker forces that exist that have been pointed to from the Gnostic traditions, which he's very familiar with. So this is a wide-ranging conversation that covers a variety of different topics, and I'm just thrilled to be able to share it with all of you. So please enjoy this podcast with Graham Hancock. But before we get started, I want to talk to you guys a little bit about Fit for Service. Fit for Service 2023 is now open for applications, and we're doing a year-long program this year. And it's really not even possible for me to express what Fit for Service is if you haven't experienced it. It's one of the most incredible things that I could ever even imagine. It's a group of people that come together who are dedicated to becoming the best version of themselves, but with a community of people who are also dedicated to the same thing and are there to support each other. And being in it together with the whole community and having all the coaches and the musical talent that comes in and everything that we bring together and the transformational initiations like the breath work and the ecstatic dance and the time out on the land and every tool that I've ever learned and every tool that all of us coaches and former podcast guests have and in the context of the community, it's a stunning experience and it's really hard to describe. So I'm trying to express this to you, but there's some aspect of it that's ineffable. And ultimately, you know, check out what we have on the website, fitforservice.com. You can see some of the things we're doing. We're going to the Eco Farm in Lockhart. We're going out to Montana. We're going to be in Sedona. But you won't really get it until you're there and you feel it and you understand that this is a, your life is never going to be the same moment. And that's shown in all the surveys we've done. It's reiterated by countless former members, it's truly life-changing. It really is. And to say anything less would actually not be telling the truth. So if this is something that you feel called to, please like check it out. Send in an application, feel the vibes. You'll talk to one of the people on our team and you'll start to see if this makes sense for you. Because I think a lot of you listening or watching this right now it's one of the biggest decisions that you can make. And we're dedicated to making this incredible. And I've often thought to myself that if I did nothing else but fit for service, that would be enough. I've had that moment many times. And last year we played around with a donation model. And you know, as a business, it lost a bunch of money. So we did fit for service really at cost, less than for free. And it was worth it. It was worth it because it's awesome. Like it's really an incredible experience. And that's 
the most honest way that I can tell you guys about what Fit for Service is. So please, if you're interested, check it out. Go to fitforservice.com. I can't wait to meet you. I have so many friends who are former members in the community, people who have enriched my life greatly. And, uh, and I hope to return that favor and just be of service to so many of you next year as we go on this journey of self-mastery to service to our tribe and community to service to the cosmos and really come together at a time when the world needs us to come together, when it needs us to transform as a community and then be the leaders of the movement that's going to carry us from the current story to the story that we all want to be in part of and involved with. So I look forward to meeting some of you guys on the inside. And now a word from our sponsors. First up, we have Onnit. And I'm going to talk again about Alpha Brain Black Label. It took us 10 years to find a formula that was the Black Label version of Alpha Brain. What does Black Label mean? Well, that's just like the premium. That's the good shit. That's the top shelf shit. Now I love Alpha Brain. I'm actually on Alpha Brain regular right now, and I feel sharp as fuck, and I love it. But that's really actually only because I ran out of Alpha Brain Black Label. The reason that I like Black Label so much is it just has a couple different key ingredients. It has some nutritional mushrooms that actually help light up the brain. It also has different forms of choline and it has mucunipurians, which really taps into the dopamine system and really keeps me highly engaged, focused, and rewarded for the work that I'm doing. So Alpha Brain Black Label is just my absolute go-to. It's also really good as a mood enhancer. I just feel better when I'm taking it. And when my mood is better, I'm more productive and I'm able to be at my best. So if you guys haven't checked it out, please do. It is the shit. Also, the packaging is super sexy, so it's a great gift if you want to give it to somebody. Go to onnit.com slash Aubrey for 10% off everything at Onnit and also Alpha Brain Black Label. Once again, onnit.com slash Aubrey. Next up, we have Mudwater. Now, Mudwater is one of my favorite products that are out there in the health and wellness better for you space. It's a coffee alternative. It has four adaptogenic mushrooms. It has cacao, Ayurvedic herbs, and it's really a coffee alternative. It has a fraction of the caffeine of a cup of coffee, but I do like a little bit of caffeine, and Mudwater just hits that sweet spot. It doesn't have a bunch of sugar or anything in there, so if you want to add your own sweetener, you're welcome to, or if you're mixing it in a shake or a warm morning drink like I often do, it's just really a kind of a perfect product, and it's no surprise that Mudwater has done so well as a company because it's just phenomenal, and phenomenal all the way up, all the way down, not only from the quality of ingredients, the flavor profile, and also just the customer service and the ethos of the company itself. I am a huge fan. And again, cacao and chai for mood and a microdose of caffeine. They got lion's mane, which helps with cognitive support and alertness. Cordyceps, which is the flagship ingredient in our product, Shroom Tech Sport from Onnit. It's got chaga and reishi to support your immune system and offer that little bit of calm that comes with the reishi mushroom. Turmeric is also one of those great products for any kind of stiffness or soreness you might be feeling. And cinnamon, which is an ingredient that's very close to my heart, that also has a bunch of antioxidants and actually in high enough amounts can help with blood sugar regulation. I talk about that a bit in my book, Own the Day. So mud water is just one of those things that if you're curious about a coffee alternative and you like making delicious beverages, whether they're smoothies or hot drinks, I highly 
recommended. It's Whole30 approved, 100% USDA organic, non-GMO, gluten-free, vegan, kosher certified. It's got all the goods. So go to mudwater.com slash amp. That's M-U-D-W-T-R.com slash amp. And use the code Aubrey to get 15% off at checkout. Once again, the code Aubrey for 15% at checkout. And finally, we have Four Visions Market. And Four Visions Market is kind of my go-to place for a lot of shamanic tools. It supports over 30 different indigenous artists and their families through more than fair trade purchase. So their spiritual tools and art. They got high quality made in prayer medicines. It's a bridge to over 15 Amazonian tribes that are sharing their traditions and really their magic and medicine. 50% of the proceeds are going to go directly to the tribes, artisans, and healers. And on top of that, Four Visions Market donates 10% of their profits to their partner nonprofit movement for Amazonian growth in indigenous cultures. They call it the Magic Fund and other different Amazonian operations with missions that are aligned with their values. This year, Four Visions Market, they're spearheading a native plant reforestation and seed preservation project in the Colombian Amazon, as well as a bunch of different support for the Putumayo region and the hundreds of indigenous people there. The tools from the Four Visions Markets, they're all handcrafted if you're talking about caripes or tepes. And all of the different botanicals, they're wild harvested again in sacred prayer, again in sacred prayer and the proper way. And you're really receiving, you know, genuine medicinal tools from these incredible traditions that have deeply impacted my life. So some of the products they include, they have an ambi sachayage microdose tincture, ceremonial grade cacaos, Amazonian king nettle. Melipona honey eye drops for eye health, nausea oil for nasal support, a chilcuagwe healing spray, and of course, their hape, which I absolutely love. So if you're interested in any of these goodies, check out fourvisionsmarket.com, F-O-U-R, visionsmarket.com, and use the code AMP, AMP, for 15% off your very first order. And now an uninterrupted podcast with Graham Hancock. Graham Hancock, this has been a while in the making. Such a pleasure to have you on the show. Nice to be with you, Aubrey. I wish yeah. I wish I could be present with you in person, but this has just been a hectic trip across the U.S. for me. I understand. I understand. Your show is such a hit. Congratulations! I mean, number one show on Netflix. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. It's it's uh, it's called Ancient Apocalypse. It has been it has been doing very well. I'm happy that it's held up because Netflix re- release hundreds of new shows every yeah. week and. And what was particularly uh, pleasing was that that for a while it was was number two of all television shows on Netflix, including dramas like The Crown, you know, which mm-hmm. are which are enormously enormously popular. It's unusual for a docu series to get to get that much attention, but yeah. uh, obviously I'm, I'm happy about that. At the same time, it's brought down a shitstorm of criticism on on my head. Yeah, it's simultaneously the vindication of people who are highly interested and and really enjoying your work and then the establishment that mm. is obviously aroused into uh yeah. into some rancor here. Indeed so. So if you Indeed could, so. if you could, our audience, you know, is probably pretty familiar with your theory and your work. So just so people have a landscape quickly about what your primary thesis is in this ancient apocalypse also was the topic of magicians of the gods which i remember reading when it came out uh, outstanding both of those bodies of work but if you could just give a, a brief summary for those people who either want to be refreshed or 
aren't familiar with uh, with the thesis that you're talking about in these in these works? Well, what I've been looking into for for the past thirty years plus has has been the possibility of a of a major forgotten episode in the human story, uh, and and uh, that is a lost civilization that flourished during the Ice Age, uh, but that 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 was almost completely destroyed in the series of cataclysms that brought the Ice Age to an end between 12,800 and 11,600 years ago. And in geological terms, and indeed human terms, that's very recently. Um, I'm not talking about a high-tech civilization. Certainly not, we should not be looking for us, for ourselves in the past. I'm not talking about cell phones. I'm not talking about rockets going to the moon. Uh, I'm talking about a, a civilization that mapped the earth, that explored the world, that was primarily based upon coastlines, which are now flooded beneath the 400-foot sea level rise that took place at the end of the Ice Age, um, and, and um, which had a deep understanding of uh, astronomy and geometry. Uh, I would say at least equivalent to Western civilization's understanding in the mid to late 18th century. So I, I want to be clear, I'm, I'm not talking about, um, uh, about what we might regard as an advanced civilization in terms, of, in terms of technology. I'm talking about an advanced civilization in terms of a level of knowledge that is not normally attributed to Ice Age populations. Uh, and I'm also suggesting that that I'll use the word advanced, that that, that that advanced civilization coexisted with the hunter-gatherer populations who we know for sure were also present uh, in the world at that time. And this is often assumed to be a rather uh, bizarre idea until we remember that our own civilization today, if we can even call it a civilization anymore, our own civilization today coexists still with hunter-gatherer peoples, uh, particularly in the, in the Amazon rainforest, where there are hunter-gatherer groups who, who don't even know that we exist, uh, but also in, in places like the Namibian desert where, where, where the San uh, hunter-gatherers uh, pursue a very different way of life to our own, yet these life ways coexist. And I'm suggesting that this was the case during the Ice Age as well. When you go through and you watch Ancient Apocalypse and go through each of these different sites, it becomes very difficult to imagine how the evidence that you're presenting is actually refuted. You know, this is this is the interesting thing about your work is it's it's so persuasive when you actually start looking at looking at everything collectively and start to weave this this global picture of what happened that it's consistently surprising to me to see people, you know, attacking it and it's not surprising from a psychological perspective i understand it but the preponderance of evidence that you're providing is is really enormous as you go through all of these different sacred sites and then there's that you know the black layer of death that you find in the in the rocks and there's just so many different things but if you had to if you had to steel man their argument the mainstream narrative argument if you had to steel man it and say like all right this is the best this is the best refutation of this collective thesis that i have what would what would you say is their steel man well, argument i haven't seen a really effective refutation and by the way i'd like to add that that uh, the ancient apocalypse docu series uh, builds upon more than 30 years of work in in my books 
uh, inevitably when you're making a docu-series where episodes are half an hour long, uh, it, even in eight episodes, it's not possible to, to represent the entire body of evidence uh, upon which I rely. Um, but it's interesting that, that the reactions to it by the mainstream have not, by and large, got to grips with, with what I'm proposing, but have simply been a, a, a deluge of uh, insults and, and ad hominem attacks, uh, particularly accusing me of, um, of promoting racism and, and white supremacy. Uh, although uh, race is not mentioned uh, ever in Ancient Apocalypse, uh, that is the most common uh, attack that is that is that is made on 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 my work, and I I find that personally hurtful, since I'm I'm married to a woman of co- a, a woman of color, and and since I have seven mixed race grandchildren, uh, you know who who will be exposed to these these kind of lies that are that are being spread about me in order to cancel me, in order to get people to just turn off and not even and not even give my work a, a chance, and I. I think that shows a, a kind of desperation uh, and, and, and also lack of moral rigor on the part uh, of, of those who wish to see uh, my work shut down. This seems to be symptomatic of something that's in society right now, where actual discourse between opposing sides has been completely forgotten. This is old idea of the Marquis de Queensberry of debate, right? Like where we had some... Yeah. Some there's none of that anymore. It's just whatever the lowest blow, whatever the whatever the most hurtful thing that one side can say it, without even addressing the issue. It seems like we've been in this race to the bottom. Not and it's it's yeah. actually you know archaeology is typically a, a cool corner of the of the science debate and of of pop, you know popular culture. But even in this, it seems like you challenge empire or the narrative. You challenge the mainstream anywhere. And they take it as a threat everywhere. It, it seems is what we're what yeah, we're experiencing. That's that's right. And although uh, although in some ways you're right to say that archaeology is a cool, a cool corner of this, that there's not been too much heated debate. Um, it's important to remember that archaeology uh, claims to hold the keys to the human past, uh, and it claims to hold sole ownership of the human past. Uh, I think this is part of the reason why the reaction to my work has been has been so intense, um, because I'm not an archaeologist, uh, and I've never claimed to be an archaeologist. I'm a, I'm a journalist with an interest uh, in investigating subjects that, that some people prefer to avoid, and, and in my case, that subject has been the prehistory of, of humanity. And somehow it seems outrageous to the key holders that an outsider should come in and say, they may have missed something incredibly important. They often they often claim that I'm, they often claim that I'm claiming that there's some sort of conspiracy theory in our, some sort of conspiracy in archaeology. And and in addition to be being told that I'm promoting racism and white supremacy, I'm also being told that I'm promoting conspiracy theories. But I don't claim any conspiracy in archaeology. I think archaeology is simply working the way that most disciplines work, that they get locked into a particular point of view. The right word for that is a paradigm, uh, that that paradigm governs how they react to new data, that the tendency, once you're locked into a particular worldview and a particular paradigm, is to defend that uh, to the death 
in in every way that you can. Your career depends upon it. Uh, your the the applause of your colleagues depend depends upon it. Uh, research funding depends upon it. There are so many examples. I give many of them in in my twenty nine book. 2019 book, uh, America Before, there are so many examples of archaeologists who have stepped outside uh, the, the narrow bounds of accepted theory in archaeology, such as Jacques Saint-Mars uh, in, in the Bluefish Caves in the Yukon, uh, who back in the 80s was proposing that human beings had been in the Americas at least 24,000 years ago. And this went against the, the then prevailing narrative that was called Clovis First, which held that there had been no humans in the Americas until around 13,400 years ago. Well, instead of, of actually investigating Jack Sankmar's findings, the academy turned upon him viciously. Uh, all his research funding was stripped away. Uh, he was uh, humiliated at conferences. Former friends would pass him by in corridors and completely ignore him. Uh, he was he was snubbed in every possible way, and huge efforts were made to discredit his work. But you know what? He was right. Back in 2000, uh, 2021, the evidence came out that he'd been absolutely right at Bluefish Caves, that the human beings had been there 24,000 years ago. And now, of course, we know that the whole Clovis first narrative is bust. Uh, and complete nonsense that human beings have been in America even longer than 24,000 years ago. Uh, I, I cite evidence in in that 2019 book, America Before, uh, of humans being in the Americas 130,000 years ago, 10 times as long as uh, the Clovis, so-called Clovis culture. Uh, and that evidence doesn't come actually from outside archaeology. It comes from, from a leading uh, group of archaeologists at the University of San Diego. Uh, and it's on display in the San Diego Natural History Museum. Uh, they found evidence of human tool use, uh, slaughtering and, and um, butchering a, a, a mastodon um, uh, 130,000 years ago, just, just south of San Diego. And again, rather than consider the implications of this, the response of the rest of archaeology has been to dismiss it, sneer in it, deny that it's possible on the grounds that, okay, we were wrong about Clovis, but we don't accept that human beings have been in the Americas for more than 30,000 years. So yeah. somebody saying humans have been in the Americas for 130,000 years has just got to be wrong. And this is just, it's just so unfortunate that, that, that there's this aspect of, of science, which instead of responding with curiosity to new evidence and new claims, just tries to shut those down. And this is greatly to the disadvantage of science in the long run. But, and I'll, I'll, I'll complete this long rant in a moment, mm -hmm. but in the long run, it is the case with all paradigms that eventually the evidence that cannot be explained by the paradigm builds up to such a level that it becomes ridiculous to keep faith in the old paradigm. And that's when paradigms shift and we have a, a, a revolution in science uh, taking place. And that has happened a number of times in the past. And I believe it's going to happen uh, over our understanding of the prehistory of humanity as well. Yeah, it kind of uh, evokes the image of, uh, of tectonic plates that are kind of stuck and they want to move, they want to move, but they're, they're kind of frozen. And, yeah. uh, and the paradigm's frozen and then they finally move and there's a big earthquake and it frees it up and everything shakes and a lot of things topple and then, you know, everything settles on the, on the backside but of then that. Then a new paradigm forms. Yeah, uh, and, exactly. and that becomes the conventional wisdom, the accepted knowledge for a, for a period of time. 
and then very often that eventually that new paradigm will also be will also be overthrown by I just have a feeling though that if if someone comes to overthrow your paradigm with new evidence and you're a great grandfather out out there somewhere you won't look at them the same way that the narrative currently is looking at you you know I think there's a there's a a flexibility of mind that needs to we really need to evolve as a species because what you're talking about has been seen in every different field of science. I mean, take the example of Ignis Semmelweis, right, who worked yeah. in OBGYN and, and noticed that hand washing had a significant impact on the survivability of mothers and children in this process. And then he was literally thrown in an insane asylum and beaten to death, dying of sepsis, probably from the wounds that weren't clean from dirty hands, right? Like the irony of this and then given a Nobel Prize, you know, posthumously. For his work, but this is there's so many examples of that where someone comes up with a theory and they're just completely, you know, completely uh ousted and attacked. And and this is this is uh this this is is symptomatic of something that needs to shift. I hope if I hope if somebody presented compelling evidence that that I'm wrong, that there may have been another kind of civilization present in the world during the Ice Age as well as hunter-gatherers. I hope that if somebody came up with really compelling evidence on that, uh, then I would be open to consider it. I'm I'm human. I'm filled with error also. Uh, I also get stuck in my own rut. There's no there's no doubt about that. But I would I would want to be I would want to be open to that. The problem is that no such compelling evidence has been presented. It just, it's right. just really straightforward dismissals, appeals to authority, uh, saying Hancock doesn't know what he's talking about, Hancock isn't an archaeologist, how, how dare he even suggest this. Uh, a journalist in the Guardian newspaper in England um, asked actually why Netflix had allowed the series, uh, as though you know people are not capable of making up their own minds. This is part of the problem with this with this um, outlook of, of the so-called experts in our society is that they despise the, the, the man and the woman in the street uh, and, and, and don't believe that they're capable of reaching rational decisions about things without being told what to think. And I, I find myself more and more embroiled uh, in, in this. It's a, it's a much bigger debate than just the debate about the possibility of a lost civilization. Um, it's a debate about free thinking and free speech in our society today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, it almost seems like there's this energy that you could almost, if you wanted to, if you wanted to take some of the mythological minds of, of our past, you could you could deify it and it would be this kind of this kind of stuck judgmental kind of kind of demonic entity and i'm not suggesting that this exists actually but there's this energy that people are participating in that is actually an energy that is needs to be you know needs to deeply deeply evolve you know and, and really it has to evolve in all of our minds as we participate in that energy ourselves to whatever small degree that we do and it seems like if we don't, if we don't, society's going to really suffer. Absolutely. I, I, I think we are at one of those turning points in the human story right now. Um, and, and uh, you know, what is needed is, is a more loving, more open, more caring view, uh, rather than just these constant attempts at character assassination from anybody who disagrees with the, with, with the mainstream. Um, and and look where where the so-called experts have have got us over the over the, the years. Uh, the, 
whether whether they're experts in in, in science, whether there are are so-called political leaders who are just a bunch of absolute assholes, uh, not qualified to lead, not qualified to lead anything, but stirring up hatred and fear mm -hmm. and suspicion in our society. We need to move on from from this tribal mindset. There may have been a time when when a tribal mindset was was a good thing to have, but in this interconnected world that we live in today, it's leading to to, to real horrors take, taking place. And, and um, I think I think we need. To, I, I want to make clear that I'm completely against government, and, and especially I, I just don't see the point of government at all. So mm. so many of the problems in our world are are caused by very bad leadership, and I'm especially against the notion of a one world government. Mm. Uh, I, I detest and, and hate that idea. I want to see as little government as possible. And if I were to characterize myself as anything, I would say I'm an anarchist, which is literally means without without government. Um, but but uh, what is needed is, is rather than having this, this tribal and, and nationalistic mindset, let's recognize the beauty and the diversity of human culture. Let's recognize uh, that this diversity is a wonderful thing, that, uh, that, that it adds to the depth and, and value of, of, of the human experience. But let's not go on defining our tribe as the best and every other tribe as the worst. Let's not, let's not set ourselves up against one another in in this way it's been my privilege to, to travel the world extensively for from for, for almost all my adult life uh, and to live in in a number of different countries and to get deeply acquainted with a number of different cultures and what i've found uh and i it should be a commonplace this that the people are absolutely the same all over the world uh, skin color is completely unimportant even gender is unimportant People are fundamentally the same. We have the same hopes, the same dreams. We all love our kids in the same way. We all want to make something of our lives. It doesn't matter, you know, whether you're a hunter-gatherer in, in Namibia or, 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 or a banker in New York. Fundamentals are all the same. Uh, and, and I think it's, it's time that we stopped using tribal mentalities and recognized that we're all part of one great human family. Uh, and and uh, rather than patriotism, we should have loyalty to the whole human race. And I repeat, that does not mean a one world government. That means much less government and human beings relating to each other rather than allowing governments and leaders to stir up hatred and fear and suspicion amongst us. It seems that people who might be skeptical of the human goodness and and how and whether we have the consciousness to actually live peacefully amongst ourselves without government we may be underestimating the impact that the structures of empire that government is actually having on um degrading our own goodness and degrading our own okay. consciousness by enforcing their tyranny and actually enforcing these crazy laws and rules and, and stirring up this divisiveness and hatred and and patterning it for us the most deplorable behavior, we may be actually underestimating the impact that government is having and then also underestimating the goodness of people if we actually removed this force. And I'm not saying remove it like like go you know, Antifa, and I, and I know you're not saying that either. It's not like attack the government. It's the opposite of that. It's just saying like, let go of the, of the talons that you have into the, into the goodness of humanity. Yeah. And, and um, of course, it's in the interests of all governing powers uh, to persuade us, the people, that we can't function without them. Uh, and they very cleverly use our money 
uh, in PR campaigns uh, in order to explain uh, to persuade us of that. And, and I've found that many people take for granted that the human race couldn't just couldn't function without governments. Uh, but that that, in my view, is simply not true. Uh, we are being we are being told a story here, uh, and I far from keeping the peace, I, I see governments as as generating war, uh, because that's in their their interests. If we if they make us hate our our neighbours, if they make us hate uh, other cultures um, and fear other cultures, then that strengthens their their hand. So I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you a wild story, and if people if people accuse you of wild stories, then they're gonna accuse me of even wilder stories. So maybe I can take a few arrows here for you and take take a little pressure off uh, off of people slinging rocks at you. So I've become quite close friends with uh, with a gentleman named Matthias De Stefano, and mm-hmm. he remembers many of his past lives. The most notable of which was he was a mother in a civilization he calls Chem which was in the Nile Basin. And he... Ancient was for Egypt. Yeah. Kind of. Yep. Mm-hmm. And he was, he was there roughly, you know, at the end of, at the end of the final, um, the final spasms of the Ice Age, 9600 BC. He was there right as they, right as, you know, civilization started to repopulate after, yeah. after the floods and after the cataclysms. And so he wasn't there in Atlantis, but his descendants were Atlantean. So, and Atlantis to him was, there was one central Atlantis, but there was many actual outposts in different cities, all in, all in, you know, water regions, right? They were, they were a, a seafaring culture and they were in a variety of different places and, then as you know the theory really everything that he remembers all the stories that he was told and they would they would make write maps of the stars and do so many things that actually corresponded with everything you were saying but as as you were saying the the meteors came and they started striking the earth in many different places and the water started to rise yeah. the there was some immediate destruction but most of the atlantean actually culture was able to was able to spread and disperse so it wasn't like i think we see images on movies and tv where atlantis was just destroyed in a in a minute actually yeah. a lot of them thousands tens of thousands were able to get onto boats and travel to different sites around the world and higher higher ground sites and he describes the civilizations as megalithic you know but not advanced they were still riding around in donkeys but they had these giant Mm -hmm. megaliths and the technology the technology that they had was a spiritual technology and Mm -hmm. they had four different guilds that were correlated to the elements so they had the water guild and this is his this is you know what what passed down from the atlantean culture and they had the water guild the earth guild the air guild and the fire guild and they practice mm-hmm. in these deep spiritual training with psychedelic compounds and with all of the different advantages that they had and what he was he was a part of uh the water guild and what the water guild would do was the water guild was involved in actually cutting the stones so they would mm-hmm. they would drip water in a line across the stones and then they they would form resin they would get in resonance with the water and actually use Mm -hmm. the water to actually cut the stones so some of the smooth cuts of these stones that don't look like they had chisel work the explanation is, yeah they were using they were using water now of course this is wild and and our field of belief wouldn't even open wild 
only wild because we've been schooled to think that such ideas exactly. are wild. Exactly. There's, there's actually nothing particularly wild about it because we really are quite ignorant on the mystery of consciousness and, 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 and what, it is, what it is to be a human being. I mean, many mainstream scientists will say, gosh, somebody's speaking about reincarnation. What rubbish. There's no such thing as, um, as, as, as reincarnation. But how, do they, how can they possibly know that? You well, know, also the, the, University of, the University of Virginia has over 2,000 case studies that they, Ian Stevenson, they I think, was the, yeah. was the leading figure in investigating that. He, he went to cult. You see, our culture, Western culture, um, is uh, profoundly materialistic, uh, and it and it utterly rejects any idea of reincarnation, um, because that implies that there's some non-material aspect of consciousness which can survive death and can be reborn uh, in a body, and that just flies completely in the face of the whole materialistic bias of Western culture. And as a result, uh, children brought up in Western culture are subjected to this ideology of materialism from a very early age. But what, uh, what Ian Stevenson found is that up to the age of about seven, uh, and he documented this in an extremely scientific way, up to the children who remember past lives is the title of the book, up to the age of about seven, uh, many children in many different cultures have memories of past lives. But in Western culture, uh, those memories are discouraged by their parents mm -hmm. and by their education system. So, so Stevenson went to India where there is not this discouragement of, of belief in past lives. And he began interviewing young children there, and he found astonishing evidence. Again, it's fully published and fully documented in his book, Children Who Remember Past Lives. Uh, he found absolutely compelling evidence that reincarnation did take place. Kids who would remember being born in a village 300 miles away, who would know of a certain object hidden under the eaves of a house in that place where they had once lived, he was able to go and test that. And again, the establishment, the, 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 the academy has just reacted to this with, with derision because it doesn't fit their paradigm. Mm -hmm. But what do they know and what do we know really about, about the human creature? We're just beginning to scratch the surface. Consci consciousness is such a huge mystery of science. And fundamentally, when we talk about reincarnation, we're talking about consciousness surviving physical death uh, and, and passing on. Uh, and and to me, that makes a, a great deal of sense. And I don't think it should be sneered at. I think it's something that's worthy of, of further investigation. So I'm very interested to hear uh, the, the, the story that you're telling about Matthias Di Stefano, but particularly since, since what he's remembering uh, accords very much with, uh, with, with good geological evidence of what happened yeah. at the end of the ice. Absolutely. And, and, Particularly so, since since um, I also think that Atlantis wasn't one place; um, it was distributed uh, around the best real estate on Earth, the coastal lands, That's during it. the Ice Age, um, and and it may have it may have uh, taken a, a principled position not to interfere with the lives of other cultures that it coexisted with, or to have minimal contact with them, but. When the cataclysm came, when those those coastlines were flooded, when when the, the that, that civilization began to go down, there certainly were survivors, large numbers of survivors, and the places that they took refuge were amongst hunter-gatherer populations. And I, I've made this point a number of times before, but if our civilization today were to collapse, and I think that's a real possibility, uh, if it were to fall apart completely, because it's such a fragile civilization, really. I mean, nobody, very few people in our civilization have the, have the faintest clue about how to survive. I'm one of them, actually. Hmm. Um, and and um, 
the only place that the only people on planet Earth who really have got the business of survival in adverse circumstances totally nailed down are the hunter gatherers. They're the ones who actually know how to survive. And it would be quite natural for survivors of our so-called advanced civilization to take refuge amongst hunter-gatherer populations and learn from them and at the same time perhaps teach them some of what we know. Uh, and that's really all that's being said about, about Atlantis in, in my argument. So I'm fascinated to hear that uh, Matthias de Savano has had past life experiences in this, in this realm. Yeah, absolutely. And and just to go back on the idea of the existence of a of a discarnate element of who we are, I went into my first psychedelic ceremony, this vision quest, which I was very yeah. blessed to be linked up with a with a proper shaman when I was 18, just graduated high school. And I was I was super anti-religion at that point. I'd gone to Texas mm. and I'd seen how none of this none of the religious doctrines that I that had been kind of pushed towards me had made any sense. I'd been to the dungeons of the Inquisition in Italy on a family trip and was horrified. And I was mm. like, this is all nonsense. I was very much materialist, rationalist, reductionist. Um, yeah. And I went and did my first journey, which was a combination yeah. of psilocybin and MDMA. And I felt my body completely evaporate. And yeah. there was no other word I had for what remained than the soul, the unborn, the undying element of who I am beyond this one lifetime. And that changed everything for me. There was no way I could dispute it. There's no way my mind, I stayed up all night that night. It was a rainy, windy night, stayed up all night just writing in my journal because it was that moment of a radical earthquake paradigm shift from this. And that paradigm shift, if I may, if I may intervene, came from an experience that you had. It didn't exactly. come from something you were taught in school or in university. It came from a direct personal experience, so much more valuable. Yeah, and no one can ever, no one can ever tell me what it was and what it wasn't. I was, I, I was there. I felt it, and I think this is one of the advantages of psychedelics is they give you the opportunity for gnosis, you know, to actually experience what you're, what you're thinking about and philosophizing about. I completely agree. Um, this is again, psychedelics are are a subject that has been for far too long demonized in our society. We're, we're beginning now to, to wake up to the incredible therapeutic benefits of psychedelics, that, that people who suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder or, or depression uh, can be very quickly healed with just a relatively small number of, of deep psychedelic experiences, whereas the big pharma drugs uh, do, do nothing for them. So there's, be there's a beginning of an awakening which is shifting the paradigm on psychedelics, but they're still regarded as in some way hazardous or dangerous. But let's ask ourselves, why are they so effective in curing PTSD and depression? In both cases, uh, PTSD and depression, the, the affected individual is locked into a very rigid frame and can't see out beyond it. They get trapped in a recurring, a recurring loop of unpleasantness. And what the psychedelics do is they break that, they break that grip. They, they, they allow the, the mind to reset uh, and to contemplate possibilities that hadn't been contemplated before. It's also true with, with, with people who are experiencing anxiety at the prospect of death, typically people with terminal cancer diagnoses. They've also had their, their last weeks or months transformed by experiences with uh, psilocybin. Um, who those experiences have shown them that, that the death of the physical body is really nothing, that it's not the end, that it might be the beginning of, a, of another great adventure. 
and and what we are fundamentally is consciousness, and and that's why I I regard our society's reaction to psychedelics until this relatively recent research has begun to get a toehold. Our our society's reaction to psychedelics, and still the case in most countries and most states, has has been to make psychedelics illegal, to demonise them, uh, to threaten those who use them with with uh, with, with prison, uh, and and um, to defame their names. And yet, uh, again, this is a point that I regard as as extremely important. If if we if we're not sovereign over our own consciousness, then we're not sovereign over anything. And it's impossible to speak about freedom uh, when the government holds the keys to our consciousness and tells us what we may or may not experience. And then, of course, the 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 the, the flack will come back, and and they'll say, "Oh, but you know, psychedelics lead people to do things that are dangerous to others." Well, actually, first of all, they don't, uh, mm-hmm. and second, and secondly, we already have laws that deal with people who do dangerous things to others. So we don't need laws that patrol the inner sanctum of our consciousness. Uh, There's just so much wrong with the way this issue has been handled in the modern world. And and, uh, my only hope is that it doesn't get completely taken over by Big Pharma, Uh, that 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 other dead hand doesn't step in. And I know already of of, uh, pharmaceutical companies who are taking out patents on slightly tweaked molecules uh, in order to to make it their own when nature provides it free of charge to all of us. Yeah. So many, uh, so many, you know, powerful thoughts and, and I absolutely unequivocally agree with you in, in all of this. And it's, it's really, there's an upside down way of thinking. They think of it as not being sober when actually on these medicines, it feels like a hyper sobriety. Like you've kind of woken up from the delusional dream that you've been in, in your waking reality. So it's, it's almost not, not being sober it's actually being more sober than you ever were and it's not i may harm other people yeah yeah it's not it's not i may harm other people it's it's actually if every time you've been an asshole is then shown right in your face and you have to deal right in your face and you have to deal with every time you've said something mean or hurt somebody or been thoughtless you know you're really it's your conscious it's your consciousness fungi medicines are real teachers they they teach us the mistakes we've made uh, which we've normally blocked out because we don't want to hear about our own mistakes. They force us to confront them. And that gives us the opportunity not to repeat those mistakes in the, in the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an, these, are, these are incredibly helpful, helpful medicines. And, and apropos of the word sober, I mean, look at the one consciousness altering drug that, that's particularly valued and glorified in our society, which is alcohol. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, al- alcohol is truly a dangerous drug. Uh, it, it leads people into very aggressive behavior. It gets them into fights. It leads to car smashes. It destroys the liver. Uh, it's a huge health risk. And yet, our, and, and fundamentally, people do not drink that glass of wine or that can of beer because of the taste. They may like the taste, but they're fundamentally drinking it because of the brief alteration of consciousness that it brings to them. Uh, the most boring drug on the planet is glorified. <laughs> By our, yeah. by our civilization, and it's a consciousness-altering drug. But yet other consciousness-altering substances, which lead us to question the mainstream narrative, uh, and psychedelics are paramount amongst those substances, those have been demonized for, for, for so long. I hope we're going to see the end of that, of that period of suppression, but I suspect it's still several years away. Yeah, I think the psychedelics are playing a role in this as they become more 
you know, adopted mainstream. Our society's, the mental health of our society has been in a steady decline and these psychedelics are providing a solution. So people may go in to work on their depression or their anxiety or their PTSD. Say, ah, I'm going to go get this treatment. Oh, whoops. I just, I just met with God. You know, I just found, I just found the, the eternal existence of my soul as a side effect of my anxiety, which I totally forgot about because now my whole world is different and I don't think I'm going to die and go to nothing anymore. And, and I think this is going to happen more and more where people are going to treat some medical condition, which will be proven to be able to be treated by these things. But as a side effect, they're going to encounter the ineffable, numinous, you know, nature of reality. And that's going to start to shift this paradigm, you know, yeah, one by one. And everybody, one by one, who's taken the risk of, of breaking these draconian laws uh, and experimented with psychedelics themselves, vast majority of, of such people have had these life-transforming experiences also. Uh, and it is, it is indeed le- leading to, to questioning of the mainstream narrative, uh, which is exactly what we need in the world yeah. today. We need this, this harmful, hateful mainstream narrative to be questioned and, and uh, in fact, overthrown. It's, yeah. it's past sell-by date. It's doing more harm, much more harm than good. Uh, and we need to change everything about the way that things function in our societies today. And we need to, again, you know, psychedelics offer this, this realization that, that um, we're not just meat robots. You know, we're not just here to work and produce and consume. We're here to have the full in-depth human experience with all that that involves. We're here to face the challenges and to answer the questions that our lives confront us with, rather than to be numbed and dulled down by alcohol uh, and, and uh, TV shows that just encourage more production and consumption. Uh, this, is a, this is a transformative moment in the human story. It'll be interesting to see how it works out. I, I'm 72 years old now. I'm not sure how much longer I've got to, to, to see this happen, but I, I hope very much to come back in, a, in my next life Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and uh, find the world uh, very, very much changed. One of the the mysteries of past lives, or perhaps the interesting point of it, is that that um, when reborn in a new body, part of the deal is that you forget your past life. You may remember it as a child up until the age of seven, but then it gradually drifts away, particularly in societies like ours. And I can. That kind of makes sense to me, because if you knew the rules of the game, if you knew that this was a theater of experience, that you're here to learn and to grow and to develop, then you might not play the game straight. But if you're, if you're not clear on what exactly is going on, you are going to play the game straight, and you're going to, you're going to have to deal with the choices you make uh, and learn from them. I, I, I think physical life in a, in a physical human body is an incredible privilege that the universe has given mm-hmm. us. Uh, and it's tragic to see how our society conspires, and I'll use that word quite deliberately here, conspires to diminish that privilege and to limit our potential rather than to rather than to open it up. Amen. Amen. And you know, those it's also imagining like how difficult it is to hold on to a dream when you yeah. wake up. You know, you can wake up in the morning and be like, well, I had an I had this unbelievable dream. And then by noon, you're like, what the hell was I dreaming about? Because yeah. the, the world yeah. the world is such a compelling and vibrant and alive dream that we're living in anyways. To hold on yeah. to a dream within the dream is very difficult. Very, very difficult indeed. This is where um you're reminding me of of DMT, dimethyltryptamine and, mm-hmm. and the way that um the, the short 
fast journey that smoked uh, or vaped DMT produces, which is typically about 12 minutes, is so overwhelming that it's very hard. You know that something major has happened. Yeah. There's often a sense of a massive download of, of information, but it's hard to remember the precise details. Little glimpses come through, mm. but, but you know much more was happening than that. And, and um, this is why I've, I've talked quite a bit recently about this new project that's taking place at Imperial College in London, uh, led by Dr. Chris Timmerman, where they are giving um, DMT to human volunteers uh, with a new technology. See, DMT is not, um, is not normally orally accessible. Mm. Um, it's, it becomes orally accessible in the ayahuasca brew, uh, because the second element of the ayahuasca brew contains a monoamine oxidase inhibitor that switches off an enzyme in our gut that normally stops us absorbing DMT orally. So the best way to, to experience DMT is to smoke it or to vape it. Then it gets past the blood-brain barrier straight into the brain or to, or to put it into the bloodstream. And that's what they're doing at Imperial College. And they've developed a new technology that allows the DMT to be administered effectively by drip. Uh, and to keep the volunteers in the peak DMT state uh, for an hour plus. I've talked wow. to quite a number of these volunteers. Uh, I must say, I would find the prospect of being an hour in the peak DMT state pretty alarming. But, uh, but it gives you the chance to get to grips with, I can only call it a realm, that other realm. That you that you find yourself in it gives you better hope of remembering it and and quite often the the um, the team who are running this study will sit by a volunteer and ask that volunteer what they're seeing what they're experiencing as it goes through they'll even put them in mri scanners to see what's happening in the brain again this is something i i find hard to imagine is being <laughs> speaking on dmt and being in an incredibly noisy claustrophobic right. mri scanner i mean that would take that would take some some courage to to deal with that. I ha nevertheless, I have actually tried to um, volunteer for the study at Imperial College, but unfortunately, I suffer from grand mal epilepsy. It came on suddenly when I was sixty seven years old, um, and they ask a whole series of questions. And one of the things that automatically rules you out uh, is epilepsy. Not because they fear that there's any likelihood that epilepsy will be triggered by DMT. Quite the contrary. They just don't want to run that risk of getting their project closed down because somebody has an epileptic fit uh, mm. during this experience. So unfortunately, I won't be able to, to, to volunteer for that. Um, but I think it's a highly worthy study. And the purpose of the study is not primarily to look at the therapeutic potential of DMT. It's to look at the potential of DMT uh, for exploring other levels of reality. It's um, almost like spiritual cartography. It's like spiritual, exactly, beautiful phrase. It's like spiritual cartography to go and map that realm uh, and to come, and, and these volunteers are coming back with astonishingly similar experiences and particularly of accounts with entities who offer them teachings. Uh, and, and, and for the mainstream just to dismiss all this as nonsense uh, is, is very, very stupid. And most of those, most scientists who do dismiss the DMT experience of nonsense have never had a DMT experience themselves. <laughs> I don't yeah. think anybody's qualified to, to put down these experiences unless they've had those experiences themselves, uh, in which case they would not be putting them down anymore. Yeah, it would be like somebody commenting on an orgasm if they've never had one. Yes, exactly. What do you really know, <laughs> honestly? <laughs>
It's like getting advice on 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 the best positions for for, for sex from a celibate priest, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Like, thanks for your theory. No, I have a bit of experience here in this. Exactly, experience is experience is the fundamental thing, and I think that's partly what the mainstream is afraid of with with psychedelics is that it mm. is it is cutting out the intermediary. We don't need the priest or the rabbi or the mullah to tell us what to think. Uh, we have the experience directly, and we can make of it what we wish. Yeah, and it's not just the scientific, you know, empire-driven. And I say empire in, in the in the kind of corporatocracy that's just looking to maximize profit above everything else is really the this kind of force that that I that is very oppressive in that in that regard, and it's woven in with the political. But there's also. Uh, empire weaves its way through religious structures as well and this is what you were kind of referring to it's the same idea of basically they're they're another type of corporation this just the what they're selling is access they're selling access to the divine Absolutely. at least and at least control. that's what they're pretending to sell they're all about yeah. control and you mentioned gnosticism earlier that the psychedelics give us a, a kind of gnostic uh, experience and that that's true because gnosticism was fundamentally about direct revealed experience Rather than rather than about teachings, and there's no doubt that the early Gnostics uh, and many other ancient societies were using psychedelics extensively in order to to, to mediate these these experiences. And of mm. course, that's why Gnosticism, the the Gnostic branch of Christianity, was the first bit of Christianity to be persecuted when the Roman Catholic Church uh, came to power under the reign of Constantine and, and pulled on the the jackboots of the Roman Empire. Uh, the very first people they started to burn at the stake were the were the Gnostics. It's not often realized how diverse Christianity was in its early days and how mm -hmm. there were many different uh, factions within Christianity. And the Roman Catholic Church was just one of those factions. Uh, but it gained political power uh, and since then has been very reluctant uh, to, to, to lose it. Um, and and I'm, I'm sure there, there are many wonderful Catholics, but the record of the Catholic Church over the last 1,500 years or so has been a record of cruelty, of suppression, of burning of all the, the documents of, uh, in, in Mexico, for example, of the Maya, heaping, heaping their codices, the Mayan codices up into huge bonfires, thousands of them, and burning them, burning them to nothing. So no wonder we're a species with amnesia when these power groups in our society have systematically set about rubbing out uh, the, the, the memories of other cultures. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, it's, it's kind of weaving in two threads, one of the threads of religion and also uh, the other thread about entities. Um, yeah, I read your fictional book, War God, and really yes. enjoyed it. And I wanted to, you know, I definitely wanted to bring it up. And this sounds like a, yeah. uh, a good segue for this because the thesis, so I've had, you know, several hundred DMT experiences from a variety of different mm -hmm. ways. Ayahuasca, you know, 30 sometimes, and then yeah. a snuff called Vilca, which comes from a seed that contains, you know, NNDMT, 5-MeO-Bufotenine. Yeah. I've experienced it, you know, smoked from, you know, mimosa extracts. I've experienced, mm -hmm. you know, and then I've been, uh, you know, trained in, in how to facilitate 5-MeO-DMT. I don't do it, but I went through the whole initiation to kind yeah. of learn the learn the ins and outs. So it's so very, very familiar with the space and obviously with that much experience innumerable encounters with entities which yes. are far far more clever than my imagination so if it is some deeper inner recessed archetype of me then me must be like the kybalion says all is mine the universe is mental i must be participating in the all inside me yes. so actually the idea of whether the entities are coming from me or out there 
doesn't really matter to me because the depth really of matter. the depth of wisdom that's coming through is far beyond what my conscious rational mind could ever yeah. conjure. So whether it's outside or inside, it's beyond my grasp. It's beyond the pale of what my rational mind could ever do in so, in so much of a way that it just can stay consistently both make me laugh, you know, draw insights, point out things that I, that I couldn't possibly understand. Yeah. So I'm very, very much familiar with this concept of entities. And the thesis of War God is basically saying that, and I'll let you comment on this, of course, because it's your book, mm. but basically saying that the conquistadors led by Cortez and actually the Aztecs, who were led by Moctezuma, were both engaging yeah. in human sacrifice in worship of the same demon entity going under different names. Yeah. And I thought that premise was like, man, that's fucking, that not only is, it's of course fiction, right? But yeah, it's it's fiction. Although it's based on quite detailed research about the the Spanish conquest of Mexico, um, and and uh, yeah, that's the, you, you've you've nailed it. That's exactly what I'm what I'm talking about. That the entity that appears to Cortez as Saint Peter, and the entity that appears to Moctezuma as Hummingbird, the war god, is actually the same entity uh, in different uh, disguises. Uh, and that the purpose of that entity is to maximize human misery. And my God, if there was ever a an enterprise that maximized human misery. It was the Spanish conquest of Mexico, bringing in its wake the horrendous curse of, of, of smallpox and leading mm -hmm. to the annihilation of millions of people across the Americas. Uh, and and um, I, I can't help seeing this as a, as a kind of a demonic intervention in human affairs. That's what demons are in the business of doing. They're in the business of maximizing misery and maximizing suffering. And the Spanish conquest of Mexico was a huge instrument of misery and suffering, uh, which which affected, of course, not only Mexico, but went on to to destroy the the, the great civilizations of the high Andes in, in Peru and in Bolivia, and then went on to destroy the civilizations that we now know existed in the Amazon. Not that they went into the Amazon with swords and spears uh, and, and, and guns, but but the diseases that they brought spread into the Amazon. And, and it's now known from very intriguing LIDAR studies, which have been followed up with uh, boots on the ground investigation, that there were huge uh, cities in the Amazon uh, in, in prehistory. And they existed up until the time that the Spaniards appeared, bringing these diseases with them. And then those diseases just spread like wildfire across South America and wiped out these populations, which became empty and deserted within a hundred years. And we're just now finding, finding their remains. LIDAR uh, is uh, a non-destructive way of investigating what's under the Amazon rainforest canopy. And it is revealing not only the evidence of enormous populations, but also the evidence of highly sophisticated uh, geometrical structures. Uh, and all of this was brought to a sudden horrific end uh, as a result of the conquest. What a pity. What, what I felt when I was I have to say, by the way, nobody reads my novels. Um, I'm, <laughs> I'm, only, I'm only known from, from my nonfiction books, and I've still got a fourth volume of War God to write because there's been so much, so many developments in, in the lost civilization field mm -hmm. that have absorbed my energies for the past, the past few years. Um, but but um, what, I wanted to, what I wanted to do in that series was to get inside the heads of the, of the main players uh, and understand what drove them and what uh, what motivated them, uh, and that's one of the things that fiction allows a writer to do, which it's difficult to do in nonfiction. Yeah. And I found that um, that by being able to do to put myself into into the heads of my characters, I began to understand what happened during the Spanish conquest 
Mex Spanish conquest of Mexico uh, much better than I did before. And if I may add on that, the, the impetus to begin writing some fiction came from an ayahuasca experience. Uh, it was, in fact, five ayahuasca experiences. I, I've, I've had about 70 plus journeys with ayahuasca over the years, starting in, starting in 2003. But in, in 2007 in Brazil, uh, a series of five sessions over two weeks were entirely focused uh, on uh, giving me the plot of a novel. Uh, and that novel wow. I wrote before I wrote, this, wrote War God, and that novel is called Entangled. Uh, and again, it posits a, a, a demonic force that is, that is trying to maximize misery and that travels through time. So there is a, a young woman in the 21st century and, and a young woman 24,000 years ago who are literally entangled. And they have to, they have to cooperate together to uh, to fight this demonic force and not allow it to to succeed. I got all of that. I didn't even know I could write a novel. Wow. I, I I got it all in a series of images and 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 instructions during these ay ayahuasca sessions. And at the very end of it, I was told very firmly, "Go away and write it." So I set down my nonfiction writing and I went away and wrote, wrote it. And then I and then I carried on and and began to write the the, the War God series. So. What that says to me, amongst many things, uh, is that these psychedelic experiences can also be enormously creative, that they, that they unlock creative sides of ourselves that we might not even have known uh, existed before. Absolutely. And that idea of the demonic, the demonic force, of course, is also central to Gnosticism, where, the, where that force is referred to as the archons, um, who, whose whole project is to make the human race as miserable and, and fail to reach our potential as, as, as possible. Uh, and no wonder that the Gnostics uh, were very familiar with altered states of consciousness. Yeah, I, I, uh, I encountered a, an entity in an ayahuasca session with, uh, I work with a Quechua healer, Maestro Orlando Chuandama. Mm -hmm. And right. um, so I encountered this, this I encounter, I've encountered many dark entities, of course, and many light entities and, be and beautiful That's entities. That's true, Aubrey. We do it. We, it's not all sweetness and light in oh, the no. ayahuasca. Oh, no, world. yeah. Yeah, if you're going if you're going for Candyland, you picked the you picked the wrong yeah, cup. You have to brace <laughs> Which, yourself every time. I do anyway. Of course, of course. And uh, and I I encountered this being that was it was technological in nature. It was it was absolutely demonic, and mm -hmm. and and I was like, what are, like what are you? You know, I had other guidance and I had other and I'm like, what are you? And it was like, this is the this is the they called it the the Mecca Archon. Which right. was like the technological. It was like the archon that was w working through technology to actually uh -huh. like undermine our own faculties of thought and our own consciousness. And and we can kind of see this. And obviously, everybody's kind of aware of the dangers of the the cell phones and the social media and our addiction to technology in all of these different ways. But it actually appeared to me in embodied as a as an entity. And uh, and it was it was quite interesting. And and it's allowed me to start thinking about. Any aggregation, archetypal aggregation of energy, you know, you can actually, and I alluded to this earlier, you could, if you wanted to deify that and make it a demon or an angel or something like that. Indeed, and so. it may or may not be what we call, quote, real, but the energy mm -hmm. is real that's behind it. Yeah. And that's, and that's like, it's, it's, it starts to like allow you to think about these things, not as like fairy tale superstitions, but just like, this is the aggregation of archetypal energy that's, and does that actually, when it's aggregated in that particular form, does it have consciousness? 
itself and and also choice and that's that's where it gets very very interesting and to me the answer is yes based on the experiences that i've had um but either way it's it's quite interesting and then what i've also realized is we can look at even ancient greek and ancient roman you know uh pantheon the olympians of course and say ah great stories great stories but i've had encounters with those beings it's totally shocking totally like who is this mercury and where did i feel that i felt this hot energy moving through my ankles and i was like oh they always put wings on the ankles and i'm just like mercury and i was like yeah i was like whoa mercury i didn't i didn't think that was a real i didn't think that was a real being i thought that was just like a story yeah no not a not a not a story an experience um this is uh it's it's fascinating when you look at the ancient egyptian pantheon and indeed many others around the world before we before we got into this top-down controlling system of the monotheistic faiths, uh, which have which have sought to attribute everything sacred to one entity, um, when we look at, uh, at at these older spiritual and religious systems, as in the case of ancient Egypt, you'll find that almost every single one of the ancient Egyptian deities has uh, what's rightly referred to as a therianthropic uh, appearance mm-hmm. from from the Greek therion, which means wild beast, and anthropos, which means man, that there's a combination of animal and human characteristics. Think of the god Horus with his, with his hawk uh, head. Think of uh, Thoth with the head of an ibis. Think of Anubis with the head of a jackal. Um, these are not things that one sees in the normal, alert, everyday pro- problem-solving state of consciousness. But they are things that we routinely see in deeply altered states of consciousness. And many of the entities that, that I've encountered in, in ayahuasca visions uh, and, and indeed in smoked DMT visions as, as well have had this therianthropic qual- quality. What's interesting with the DMT in pure form is, is precisely what you mentioned, uh, although you got it from an, an ayahuasca experience, which is DMT med- mediated mm-hmm. through the gut, um, is the, the technological element of the entities that are, that are often encountered. Mm-hmm. Um, that's rarer in ayahuasca experiences, but it does happen. The ayahuasca experiences, it's interesting that there are these differences. And in the Amazon, they say that the the difference is precisely caused by the ayahuasca vine, that the ayahuasca vine, which itself is not consciousness altering, or not particularly so, is the master plant. uh, And that it's harnessing the leaves that contain the the DMT to, to give us this experience. So it's interesting that when mediated with the ayahuasca vine, the realm that one enters is often very jungly and full of um, serpents and, and, and full of jaguars and, and, and panthers, very, a very jungly, organic realm, whereas, uh, whereas quite often with, with smoke DMT, it's a very mechanical realm where the entities seem like machines um, and, and uh, powerful machines by, by all means, but machines still and have this trickster this trickster quality about them. But there have been times on, on my ayahuasca journeys where it's flipped over into a very technological DMT type of dream. And, and I don't know what these, I just don't know what these things are or what is going on. I don't think anybody does, yeah. but I think, it, I think it merits much further investigation. And that's why I celebrate what's happening at Imperial College in London now, um, because yeah. these experiences, I think, have been fundamental to human culture. Uh, over tens of thousands of years. Um, and for our society, which is really just 
the sort of fingertip on the end of the long arm of human culture, for our society to write off all those experiences as, uh, and, and to demonize them and rubbish them is a terrible mistake. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think one of the things that I really celebrated about War God as well is I think you can get into this mindset that all primitive cultures or all non-Western cultures were, were better in every way and that psychedelics are always you know, always helpful. They're, they're a panacea. Yeah. They're always good. But, you know, you tell the story very clearly and inside the minds and, and hearts and, and thoughts of the priests of, of Moctezuma who were yeah. taking psychedelic mushrooms. They call it Teotonoctil or something like that. And, yeah. and yeah. taking, taking, taking psychedelic mushrooms and car and cutting the hearts out of people at, by the thousands committing horrific murders on a, on a gigantic scale uh, in honor of this uh, demonic entity that they, that they regarded as somehow worthy of worshiping. And, and it's a, that's why I also pre present the balance to that in the book, because, because a lot of Christians will, will condemn those cultures for carrying out human sacrifice, forgetting that Christianity itself carried out human sacrifice repeatedly over hundreds and hundreds of years. The last witch burnings uh, took place in England in the 18th century. That's just really not very long ago. Okay. Burn somebody at the stake uh, in the name of your deity, and what you're performing is an act of human sacrifice, which is no different from the acts of human sacrifice that were, were carried out by the, by the Aztecs. It's the same, it's the same end result. Um, in fact, if I were given the choice as to which way I'd rather go, I, I'd rather have a quick knife thrust to the heart than be slowly burned at the stake like Giordano Bruno, hung upside down and allowed to suffer for 24 hours before he, before he died. You know, this is very, the cruelty and wickedness of the Christian church over the years. We all often hear so many great things about the Christian church and that's fine, but to be real, we have to accept the fact that this that this religion has been has been the source of so much division and so much cruelty in the world over over so long that we really need to ask ourselves what is that thing that we're calling God? Yeah. Uh, and the Gnostics were very clear that that entity called Yahweh or Jehovah was not a god at all. He was an imposter. He was a demon, uh, and and uh, his purpose was to mislead the human race. And if that was his purpose, then he certainly succeeded in doing so. Well, you, I mean, when you say the word God-fearing, you know that you're upside down, right? Yeah. Like, like God yeah. is, and when you actually experience God, it's, it's, it can be overwhelming in all of the consciousness of life. It contains all the, all the light and all the dark, but it is not something you fear. It's the, it's yeah. the overflowing eminence of love, emanation of yeah. love that's going exactly. everywhere. It's the opposite. You know, it's like you want more, not less of this yeah. of this being. And so it just points to the upside down nature that we've been in. We're really, we're not, not only a culture of amnesia, but we're a culture that's been like Giordano Bruno, who was actually hung upside down when he should have been turned right side up and put on a pedestal and Absolutely. said, thank you to it. He was upside down, just like yep. the whole structure of everything was upside down. And I can only imagine, you know, from my understandings of Yeshua and the deep mystical power of his teachings that what has been done in the name of Yeshua and in the name of Jesus is yeah. the absolute upside downing of everything that he stood for. Definitely. I completely agree with you. And, and again, the Gnostics saw the figure of Jesus as a Gnostic teacher. They didn't see him as, a, as divine. They saw him as a teacher. Uh, who well as offered, divine as all of us, which is what Jesus was trying to say all along. All of us, yes, yes, that's that's that that that's right. Uh, we're all the sons of God in that sense, or the daughters of God. But I, but but um, unfortunately, uh, 
what we're dealing with in the in the big monotheistic faiths uh, is I, I go with the Gnostic view. It's an imposter. Uh, mm. it's, a, it's an entity that uh, seeks to mislead humanity, and that and that can be shown from the works of these religions and the harm and the damage that they've that they've caused. And I know that what I'm saying is going to be outrageous to 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 large numbers of people. But just think about it. Just think about you know stoning a woman to death because she's unfaithful to her husband, which still happens today uh, in Islamic cultures. Just think about the cruelty of the Christian Church and the, and 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 the, the burning at the stake of its of its opponents over centuries and, and centuries. And ask yourself, can this really be excused? Can can the religion be excused for that? Many people say, well, that happened then, but it's not true Christianity. Well, I'm afraid it is true Christianity. Uh, and and if that religion cannot uh, cannot deal with its own baggage, then it's not going to go uh, very much further. And, you know, I think the safeguards on all of these structures are actually, in many ways, the these psychedelic experiences, the experiences yeah. of transcendence, where you get to actually encounter both imposters and the truth. And then you actually get to sort out from the inside, from, you know, from what we feel anthro-ontologically, like what's happening in our body, like through my body, yeah. I vision God, this, this feeling of understanding what's actually happening, then yeah. it allows you to set the world, you know, set the world through your own, through your own gnosis. It, it allows you to become your own, your own Gnostic. And, and that's the safeguard for all of these atrocities that has been categorically removed. And you know what I'd like to to say to anybody who's not worked with these plant medicines, these fun fungi medicines as well, is 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 that um, you know they are teachers. They 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 are teachers. Fundamentally, it's a very strange thing that that plants, which we regard as um, non sentient, uh, nevertheless, the, the mixture of the two plants involved in the ayahuasca brew immediately puts us face to face with our own baggage and starts teaching us how to deal with that. Of course, we can't put right mistakes we've made in the past, but we, we don't have to keep on making those mistakes in the future. Uh, and the real work begins after the session. I'm sure you'll agree. It doesn't begin. It's not a, session, it's not a magic pill, uh, which is suddenly going to transform your life. It's, it's, it's a medicine that's going to teach you stuff about yourself and give you the opportunity to change. But integrating those lessons that you've learned into the life that you live on this plane, that's where the hard work really begins. Uh, and and um, far from being a, a, a magic pill, it's a recipe for years of hard work and, and working on oneself uh, to be a, a better and more nurturing and, and more positive and more useful person and uh, not to harm others. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you 100%. And this was, you know, again, to sort of weave back to the partially told story from Matthias de Stefano, which I'm sure yes, uh, let's go back to that. everybody wants to, people might want to hear. And, and also to understand that those cultures w had no restrictions, no such restrictions on yeah. psychedelic medicine. But as Matthias tells the story, in their, in their understanding, at least in what was told to him, and again, the story of Atlantis, Atlantis and the Atlantean civilization was passed down through many generations by the time he got it. So he never, he yeah. doesn't remember a life in Atlantis. He's just one of the post-Atlantean civilizations. Right. Right. And the story that was told um, was both, yes, the meteors that came down and they hit in a variety of different places. They melted the ice, there was floods, but mm -hmm. there, was a, there was a causality that they attributed to it in that the Atlanteans had put up in all of their different, all throughout their empire, they'd made 
They'd made structures where people, priests, could enter into consciousness and the structures were resonant with the stars and they actually developed somewhat of a spiritual worldwide web of consciousness. So yeah. uh, a, like what Rupert Sheldrake would call the uh, morphic resonance field. They were yeah. able, actually able to tap into that in a really profound way and they were holding, they were holding a balance of the earth. But actually this idea of empire or this kind of demonic idea of control over over other people there was a faction that that kind of split off that said no we don't want this centralized atlantean kind of control yeah. of our consciousness and there was a there was a conflict and it ultimately and the atlanteans tried to make a power move where they tried to actually use these technologies which were meant to hold balance and equanimity for the earth for power and it disrupted the grid in a fundamental way and the disruption of the grid actually removed the protection that the earth had because it's not every 12,500 years or whatever that the that the meteor said it's just every once in a while and so in their understanding they were holding a protection over the earth that that left because everything was in chaos because the the desire for power had gotten had gotten into the Atlanteans who'd lived peacefully for four thousand mm-hmm. years or so before that, yeah. and yeah. and then so and when that happened, that's when that's when all the cataclysm the began. Tank. So it was, a, it was a cautionary. There's a cautionary tale that he remembers of this is what happens when you go try to make that move for power. You know, yeah. it like throws everything out of balance, and very much so. We're in the same. It's also another warning for us because we're in the same moment. Yeah, well, we're 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 the next lost civilization. Uh, that's what that's what our civilization is today. Uh, we don't have to be, uh, but choices need to be made. We have to we have to change the path that all the big industrialized technological countries are on right now. Uh, otherwise, we're it's not even going to take a cosmic disaster. We're, we're going to bring ourselves down, yeah. uh, collapse and destroy our civilization, uh, lose all the support systems that we've relied upon, uh, and be put in a place where we have to rely only on ourselves again. And that will be very difficult. That's why I think our, our civilization today is, is fragile, um, because it looks strong. Uh, it, it's capable of incredible technological feats, but psychically, it's very fragile uh, and not ready to to confront uh, the, the chaos that may that, that, that may come. No doubt, no doubt. And these stories from the past are important. And I, and I think this is a point you make. It's a point that Matthias makes as well. Like these stories of the past are important. And to not only show us, you know, the classic, you know, those who do not learn learn from history are doomed to repeat it. You know, this is, so they actually had, he actually had that woven into the story. So it was not only a particular time, but it was a particular mindset. Is he when he has these past life experiences? Full on, he has full access. So he has a, he has a, he has a, a, a phone with a stylus. And right. he takes notes to himself in Atlantean, right. in Atlantean like cuneiform, basically. Right, right. So he's entering a trance-like state uh, autonomously, without the without the need of. It's of, just, uh, it's just a, he calls himself. He's like, I'm a particular type of being that's like a memory cell, and whatever mm-hmm. whatever function that wipes out the memory and makes it like a dream for most people, I'm the one that was supposed to. I'm just built that I'm supposed to remember. And yeah. so he doesn't consider himself special or like it's a special no. gift. It's just like I'm a memory cell in this collective, like one organ, like the the, the call it the pituitary or whatever of of all humanity. He's that one cell in that in that particular yeah. gland that's able to remember. And and he's you know he sings on my podcast. He sung some songs that he would sing to his daughter, 
and he mm-hmm. was a mo- he was a, he was a woman in that life and and this life he's a he's a gay man and he's mm-hmm. loving his life in this life and he loved his life then and yeah. and he's singing songs to his to his daughter in this this lullaby and he sung that song and there was something so human that woke up in me some like yeah. ancestral memory when I heard this Atlantean lullaby and he's not a great singer he's not you know trying yeah. to be a, a performing artist but it was just sung like like a mother would sing to their daughter and right. it was so powerful like of all the things of course I approach all of these things skeptically I don't actually even believe in astrology and numerology I I'm open to it but I've never found anything compelling I'm not like super into all of these phenomenons but when I hear his song and my mm. body knows it as a real song and knows it as I know it is true you know it's just mm. this it's this interesting thing and and of course all of his wisdom matches up level exactly resonates at the heart level like i I feel it and and everything he's saying you know correlates with everything that you're writing so the scientific evidence of the past and then also what he's talking about the cosmos correlates with my 23 years of psychedelic adventuring where i've just you know all of the entities and the dimensionality and all these experiences there's so much correlation that i haven't found any dissonance between that which i know internally and that which i learn from you know individuals like yourself about the past yeah so it's been really it's been really like a, a a beautiful relationship to have and he's just a he's just a great great human being and he does he can enter trance states as well and then channel other different types of energies um but he has waking access to that memory what's often forgotten is that is that dmt is a natural brain hormone right um it's it's present in all human beings and, and in fact in almost all animal life, but usually in sub-psychedelic quantities. Uh, some people may, may have a bit more of it than, than others, and, and it may just open those doorways that are normally closed for most of us yeah. without the help of psychedelics. Um, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting phenomenon, actually, that a, that a natural brain hormone is illegal, um, but uh, that's the <laughs> world we live yeah. in today. But what, what he was saying also, uh, really strongly supported by Plato, who's the, the, the earliest surviving tradition of Atlantis is passed down to us by Plato, who makes it clear that his ancestor Solon learned the story in ancient Egypt, um, and indeed speaks of, of um, how Atlantis was once a beautiful civilization, uh, but that how it became cruel and how it began mm-hmm. to impose will upon others uh, to use its technology to gain power. Yeah. Uh, that it uh, ceased to wear its prosperity with moderation. And in response to that, the universe finally had enough and, uh, and struck it down. Uh, I think the balance between human beings and the universe is something else that's ignored in our civilization today. We are yeah. part of the universe, and our, our behavior and even our thoughts uh, have universal implications that we are taught to ignore uh, at our peril. Mm. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. So well, so well said. And, and, you know, so to, so to continue on with some of the things that you might find interesting and, and I, yeah. and I deeply hope that you guys are able to have a conversation at some point. I think it would be uh, a beautiful experience for you guys to talk, but he, so he shares that he was actually part of the water guild, as I said, that was cutting the stones, but the, mm-hmm. the, the air guild and the earth guild could actually, they would go into a trance and they would form they would get into like psychic resonance with the stones and they mm-hmm. would be singing. And as yep. they would be singing, 
And and singing was pretty much part of all of the different guilds. They would use sound and sound healing, yeah. sound medicine technology, sound technology through their own voice. And they would get into resonance with the stones and yeah. they would actually then start to raise the octaves of how they were singing. And so they would mm-hmm. actually raise the weight as they raised the, so they would lift, they would make the stones lighter by yeah. how they would sing and how they would actually move the density of the stones through the octaves, which they would be, they would be elevating and this was part of the technology that answers the question well how the hell did they get all these stones up in the first place how did they move them all how did well they had people who are part of this you know the air guild who could sing into the stone and then move it move it however they wanted and the water guild would cut the stones right again it makes perfect sense to me there are a number of ancient egyptian traditions that, that speak of these massive stones being lifted by the priests chanting um, and and it's not an it's not an accident that singing is also a hugely important part of the ayahuasca journey, particularly in the Amazon. The the Icaros that uh, that the, the shamans sing there uh, guide the journey. They're like a road through that realm. So as you hear something like that, and also I'll just finish with uh, with the last bit of the story that I think you might find interesting. There's mm-hmm. tales in many of the different mythologies of them being giants. These members of these other civilizations he said well yes we were we had these spiritual technologies and our consciousness was giant they've been using psychedelic plant medicines and they'd been evolving but they've also they also had different levels of nutrition they had different mm-hmm. levels of medicine and just like you see in a lot of cultures who've had that who've had different access to protein and different access to they were just large they were actually larger mm-hmm. you know and they lived a lot longer you know their lifespan was 80 to 100 years, just like ours. And, you know, mm-hmm. they were healthy and, and strong and robust. And they had this kind of spiritual brass. So they were giants in a way. They lived several times as long. And they were, you know, it was just uh, the advancements of, of the culture in that Intellectual way. Intellectual certainly. Yeah, Spiritual. yeah. For sure. And slightly physically larger. And then, yeah. and as they went around and they went around to these different, you know, as they re-civilized, kind of the re, uh, repopulated and dispersed around the world, eventually like the question is, all right, what happened to them? Well, they just started, you know, they started breeding and, and kind of interbreeding with all the local populations until eventually. Populations, yeah. That's yeah. it. And that's, and that's really how it, that's really how it went. They didn't decide to just, we're only going to, you know, sleep with each other like the, you know, like the Targaryens or something from Game of Thrones, you know, it's yeah. like they just dispersed and they made love to all of the people of the different lands and, and, and the DNA was And they brought with them knowledge and that knowledge filtered down and we can see evidence yep. of it still, ex- still extant in the world today and, and uh, massively denied by mainstream science. Um, but there is a heritage that the, the whole human race has, has received, I believe, from, yep. from a lost civilization of prehistory and i think atlantis is uh, is a really good name for that for that lost civilization because fundamentally it does come to us from plato the the the, the earliest surviving account of it and uh, i've seen academics twist themselves into knots trying to dismiss plato's account they can they can respect him in all other ways but the moment he starts talking about a lost civilization, he can't possibly be talking about something real. Right. Even though he repeats many times that this is a true story based on facts, that's ignored. And they say he's trying to set up some kind of political model or make some sort of philosophical point, anything rather than admit that he's reporting true history. Mm. Yeah, indeed. 
So when you hear that, when you hear it, you've been to so you've been to more of these sacred sites than I ever have, but I've been to some of the ones down in Peru and, mm-hmm. and they're, un, it's unbelievably stunning, the stonework Stun- that's, that's there. So when you hear, when you hear this account, you know, from Matthias of the way that they actually changed the weight of the stones, they still had to move them. They couldn't just like totally levitate them telekinesis with their mind. They still had to move them, but they could change the weight of them so that they were much easier to move by singing into resonance with them. And they could cut them with water instead of actually having to use chisels and things. Does this does this make sense from what you've seen on the ground and what you've been able to put your hand on these stones and see all over the world? It makes It makes perfect sense to me. And of course, in saying that, I know that I'm handing a hostage to fortune and giving my critics a stick to beat me with. Um, because, because, of course, to speak of anything like telekinesis or, or telepathic powers um, is regarded by the, uh, the, the academy today as complete nonsense. Uh, and it's often used, actually. I, in my books, I probably don't devote more than a, a page across thousands of pages to that speculation. Uh, that their that their technology was very different from ours. That it was based on latent faculties of the human mind that have that have fallen into that have that have re- relapsed in our civilization today, but that were highly prominent in the in in the past. And that the human mind is capable uh, of of far more than we give it credit for. It doesn't have to be mediated through machines uh, or leverage in the way that it is in our society. The human mind can have a direct impact. Uh, on physical reality. Uh, And you mentioned Rupert Sheldrake earlier, a a man for whom I have deepest respect. Uh, Rupert is is a real scientist, but he's a rebel. He's stood out Mm -hmm. against the the academy. He's stood out and presented solid scientific evidence, for example, for telepathy, uh, which, which is very difficult to refute. And how do they refute it? They just ignore him and sneer at him and pour scorn upon him. So I'm, I'm very, I'm very proud of Rupert that he's just kept on, kept on presenting the evidence, sticking with the facts and, and pushing it in their faces to the point where it becomes ridiculous to, to, to resist it. Um, you know, we, we've, we've all had experiences of telepathy and it isn't, uh, it isn't absurd to suggest that that ability could be magnified with training and with focus mm-hmm. upon it. But it's difficult for it to be magnified in a society that despises such ideas, which is our society today. It's difficult for several reasons, according to Matthias. As I've asked Matthias, like, well, could could we do this now with the proper training? And what he's saying is very much, you know, in accord with the ideas that Rupert kind of proposes of this morphic resonance field. But he talks about this field of belief, that there's yeah. actually a field of belief that's necessary to actually hold the possibility of somebody able to do this. Now, of course, the critics and skeptics will say, oh, of course, that's a convenient excuse. But fundamentally, you know, the, the, the interconnectivity between belief and consciousness and reality in the yeah. way that even, even in the quantum realms now that, you know, like I think it was um, Hoffman who's talking about like local realism is being challenged, the idea that actually our observation of something is actually necessary for that thing to actually be what it actually is. And this is the, yeah. it goes, it builds upon the observer effect in quantum mechanics. And of course, this is beyond my, beyond my pay grade. It's one of the exciting ways where there's a nexus with, uh, with psychedelic experiences of other realms and quantum physics, uh, recognizing the, the, the probability of, of parallel realms, parallel universes. Yeah. Uh, and, and, uh, what quantum physics hasn't explored yet, it hasn't got into yet is how do we, 
how do we explore and map those realms? And maybe psychedelics are the answer. I, you know, spiritual cartography, I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. into it. But uh, yeah, so ultimately what he's saying is that the, the field of belief, the collective beliefs, all of the observations that believe that this is possible or not, that has to be softened in order to, and, and allow for the possibility for this to emerge. And I actually think that this is going to return in our future as more and more people become open to these ideas. I think we're actually in our lifetimes going to see the return of what we would now call magic. But what they yeah. just what they just did back then, as this was a yeah. part of the this was a part of the laws of their reality yeah. that they lived in, and we would call it magic now, but it will become just part of the part of the natural order of things. Well, and we I believe that'll magic, come in our lifetimes. Magic is just science we don't understand. Yeah, well said. Yeah, well said. Well said. And it's another one of those words that that are sneered at by by the the, the academy. Any any notion of magic is 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 dismissed uh but that's also dismissing human potential uh in 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 all sorts of ways so yeah matthias sounds like he's had some very important and, and very valuable experiences i shall definitely learn more about yeah them. happy to happy to connect you guys or maybe if you uh if you do make it down here to austin we could all get on a podcast together and i can just sit we'll back up. and and smile as uh, as you guys <laughs> tell stories about <laughs> tell stories about the ancient fast yeah um, you know obviously i'm coming to it from a from a different point of view i i don't personally have um strong past life experiences i have a since my childhood i've i've had an absolute horror of being burnt at the stake something i get very emotional about and i do speculate sometimes was i burnt at the stake in a past life um is that where this comes from uh the way now that um the academy is trying to burn me at the stake for my ancient apocalypse series uh, and, and and for my books pouring scorn upon me presenting me as a an enemy of society uh, the Guardian newspaper says it's the most dangerous show on television. Uh, you know, this is this is the modern way to burn somebody at the stake. Yeah. Uh, is to is to destroy them uh, with with attacks on their person, which when you investigate them, turn out to have no basis. But the attack itself is enough to smear that individual in the eyes of so many who trust who trust those media. You asked me earlier um, whether how I would react to you know, definite proof that my hypothesis, my working hypothesis, which is always changing, by the way, is, is, is wrong. And my answer to that is I, I have changed my views uh, extensively as I've gone along. My policy with books is I'll never change a single word of a book once I've published it. I don't want to whitewash the book. I don't want to, I want it to be there on the record. I've updated a couple of books, but only in the way of adding a forward and an afterward. I leave the original text present. There are things in Fingerprints of the Gods that I don't go with anymore. That was the first book I published on the possibility of a lost civilization. And I've, what I've done is I've written further books where I've, I've explored those avenues that I didn't explore properly in Fingerprints of the Gods. And Magicians of the Gods in America before are the most recent examples of that. So that anybody who wants to critique my work can, can have a full view uh, of everything that I've done since the 1990s. And I won't, I won't go back and edit anything. Uh, as I say, I'll only add a, a, an afterword or a forward to it. Um, but what puzzles me, but doesn't really puzzle me actually, 
because that's the world we live in, um, is that in most of the attacks that have been made on my work, the archaeologists and their friends in the media who are attacking me uh, talk only about Fingerprints of the Gods, which I published 27 years ago, and don't talk a word about Magicians of the Gods or America before, uh, because they know they're on more difficult ground there. I've been improving my game, continuously mm -hmm. improving. I learn from my mistakes and I, I, I incorporate that learning into new work. Um, but at the same time, I don't want to pretend that I, was a, that, that, that I didn't say something in the past. I did say it and it's there and I'll keep it on record forever uh, and let people make up their own minds. And, you know, we're in a fortunate time as well with all of these, with all of these difficulties and challenges. We're in the fortunate time that you get to reach people without those filters of the, of the, you know, kind of guardians of the, you know, guardian, an interesting word, but the guardians yeah. of the mainstream narrative, because yeah. you've been able to go on Joe Rogan's podcast and you've been able, you're, you're on my podcast now. And obviously it's, you know, a, not, not the size of Rogan's, but we're reaching hundreds of thousands, millions of people. You're reaching, you're reaching very large numbers of people. And this is one of the great developments in, in the world we live in today. We've talked a lot about the negative things, but the, the, the ability for people to speak freely and communicate with other like-minded people has, has dramatically increased as a result of podcasts like yours and Joe's podcast you know joe's joe's podcast has it's the first time i've appeared on your podcast but joe's joe rogan's podcast has been enormously important to me uh, mm -hmm. at, at, uh, at the first episode i did with him was back in 2011 i think it was episode 147 yeah um, i remember that and, one and he suddenly put my work in front of a whole new audience who weren't who weren't aware of me at all and that has definitely empowered me so i'm grateful to the the, the podcast realm uh, for, for allowing me freedom of speech and, and allowing me to get what I have to say across in a way that the mainstream media just will never do. The only story that the mainstream media want to write about me is that Hancock is a crackpot, he's dangerous, and he's misleading the public. That's the only story they want to tell. I've had a recent example, I won't name them, of a newspaper in Britain who clearly wanted to go on that bandwagon as well, to gallop with the herd of, of pouring scorn upon me. But I insisted that we do a written interview. And I gave, them, I gave them detailed written replies to all of their questions. And at the end of the day, because those written replies would not have allowed them to do the hatchet job they wanted to do, they just didn't publish the story. <laughs> yeah, well, we... Uh... This is the this is the time we're in, and it's a, it's a, there's a cautionary tale and a meta and a meta cautionary tale in the story that you've told, and and I just want to say personally for me, just the deepest gratitude and thanks for your courage and for standing out both for what you've shared again about the evidence of ancient civilization, but also the 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 way that you've stood on the meta perspective the way that you've stood and with withstood these attacks and yeah. been an example of someone with dignity and integrity and courage and you know this is this is a model that's invaluable even beyond even beyond the work that you've you've put out there which is also invaluable but um, so just the utmost admiration and gratitude for you as a human yeah. and uh, and your incredible body of work Thank you, Aubrey. One of the things that gives me gives me hope is the way that that young people and even young trainee archaeologists respond to my work. And I often get private communications from from people who who say that my work has caused them to think again about everything. And if I'm doing a, that, even with a small number of people, then I'm I'm grateful for the ability for the for the opportunity to do that. I think you have no idea about the the positive impact. 
you've had on the world and will continue to have on the world it's it's probably even more enormous than your mind can even can even grapple with sweet of you to say that thank you uh, I believe it. I believe it wholeheartedly, and uh, and hopefully, as our as our journeys wend along their way, I would love to have another conversation with you, and uh, and uh, there's many many more things to explore. Absolutely, I'll look forward to the next time, Aubrey. Absolutely, thanks everybody for tuning in. Thank you, Graham, and uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning into this podcast with Graham Hancock. I highly recommend his series on Netflix, Ancient Apocalypse, and all of his work that we talked about on this show. And once again, if you're interested in Fit for Service, this is some of the last time that you can apply for our core year-long program. So check that out at fitforservice.com. I love you guys. Oh, and by the way, podcast is going to be taking a break for a couple weeks over the holidays. We'll be back strong at the start of the year every Wednesday. So see you guys next year.